Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Templeton College, and a very warm welcome to the third of our four Green Templeton lectures on Living with the Coalition. Uh, tonight, we're taking the perspective on the Coalition of <coughs> higher education and universities in particular, and I think we have the best possible guide. Um, David Eastwood is not only a distinguished historian, he's also, I think, what we could call a veteran of the higher education wars. Among other things, he's been a senior tutor in Oxford, a professor of history and head of department at Swansea, head of a research council, the Arts and Humanities Research Board, which later became the AHRC, uh, chief executive of the Higher Education Funding Council for England, and since April 2009, David has been a vice-chancellor again, having previously been vice-chancellor of East Anglia, on moving to, to, to Birmingham. Uh, you'll also be aware, of course, that most recently he's sat on the review of higher education funding uh, chaired by Lord Brown. Tonight, he's following the adage of, of one of my distinguished predecessors here, John Walton, who always used to say that lecturers have either slaves or ideas. And John is uh, no, no, David is giving us uh, a lecture in that mould tonight without any PowerPoint safety net at all. He's kindly agreed to, to speak for about 35, or 45, uh, 35 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A session and, and some discussion. So a warm welcome, David, and thank you very much. David, thank you uh, very much for that kind introduction. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, to contribute to this most interesting uh, series of lectures and thank you for all, to all of you for your interest this evening. Um, as David said, I did take a, a New Year's resolution um, that I would use PowerPoint sparingly. Uh, so far I haven't used it all, at all this year. Um, which of course doesn't mean you have to think. Um, it means you have to rediscover uh, connected prose um, and um, I began to regret uh, having decided I was going to write a lecture rather than do a PowerPoint uh, partway through. But uh, uh, I hope whatever merit this evening has it better for the fact that I did at least think about it rather than you get some rather ex uh, extended version of the many comments uh, I made to the press um, during the fees debate. Uh, England uh, doesn't love coalitions. So it's generally disguised them as arrangements within parties, as distinct from arrangements between parties. This is not, I think, the occasion to speculate on the likely destiny of the present coalition, but historical parallels are tempting. The last long-lived coalition government was the wartime administration, Churchill's coalition, from which the junior partners, Labour, emerged victorious at the subsequent general election in 1945. That, I suggest, is an improbable guide <laughs> to the outcome of the 2015 election. The previous coalition, of course, was the 1931 coalition, and here there are some parallels, though what we now have is not a national government in style or in spirit. Nonetheless, the 1931 coalition did lead to a significant political realignment, to an erosion of the political space for the Liberals and uh, to the, uh, longer, in the longer run to the re-establishment of the Conservatives as the natural party of government after the upheavals of the previous 25 years. There may be some runes to be read here. The other interesting period of coalition and minority government 
is the mid-19th century. In essence, the period between the convulsions which followed the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846 and the emergence of new, firmer party alignments after the Second Reform Act of 1867 and the emergence of a realigned liberalism around the figure and leadership of Gladstone. The two decades after Peel's great premiership are interesting, partly because they produced a certain style of government and parliamentary sovereignty, and partly because they produced two key texts, perhaps the two key texts, on our government and constitution, Walter Badgett's The English Constitution and John Stuart Mill's Considerations on Representative Government. Back here in Oxford, where I taught both texts, uh, the temptation to revisit my tutorials is nearly irresistible, uh, but I will resist. Though interestingly, in their different ways, both Badgett and Mill did see merit in a House of Commons in which the party system was not hegemonic and the power of the cabinet was considerable but constrained. Interestingly too, both saw the absence of a determining parliamentary majority as creating space in which parliament could operate in rather sophisticated ways and on key issues, those in parliament who possessed expertise could exercise appropriate uh, influence. In part, they both had a a vision of a parliamentary system where, (coughs) shorn of parties having an overwhelming power, some issues might be debated and policy formed by reference to an informed understanding rather than party ideology, and certainly not by (coughs) members already committed by ill-advised pledges to their electors. This sustained period where no party could command a majority might be instructive, not least because it's so very different from what is currently happening. Whereas governments in the mid-19th century were willing to accept a complex, varied and unpredictable relationship to Parliament, indeed uh, to accord some significant authority to the process of parliamentary debate itself, the current coalition has sought to anticipate disagreement and foreclose or at least constrain debate through the coalition agreement. In other words, the coalition agreement, in other words, through the coalition agreement, the government sought similar authority within Parliament to that enjoyed by single party governments with a clear electoral mandate. It's not, of course, worked out quite like that, and so far this has, from the point of view of government, been a Parliament in which a striking number of individual MPs have rebelled. But interestingly, those very terms, rebel and rebellion, presuppose strong party discipline and the normative authority of a programme for government, rather than a process of parliamentary debate and decision. Understanding this context and the historically quite specific ways in which the current coalition has been constructed is important to contextualising its higher education policy. Higher education was not just a key element in the coalition agreement. It was avowedly one of the most controversial uh, issues within that coalition agreement. It was therefore inevitable that higher education policy would would, would prove an early test of the coalition. Though, as I shall argue, it was much more a test of the politics of the coalition than a test of its policy or policy making. Before we leave the 19th century, uh, permit me one more reflection on the idea of MPs being pledged. 
This, of course, created massive problems for the coalition, as the overwhelming majority of Lib Dem MPs had taken the NUS pledge to abolish fees. Accommodating these pledged MPs was a huge challenge for the coalition agreement, and a still greater challenge in the fraught politics which followed the publication of the Brown Review. Sir Robert Peel had a short way with backbenchers who were pledged uh, to uh, oppose any repeal of the Corn Laws. No member, he believed, should pledge himself on any issue. In this, Peel followed the Burkean notion that members were elected to exercise their judgment. They were accountable to electors, but not pledged on any issue. I observe simply that we are now a long way from a tradition of electors reposing faith in men without prescribing measures. <laughs> the issue of pledges takes us to the heart of what has made HE policy so deeply political and so deeply contested in the last 15 years. Underlying higher education policy, there has been, I think, a profoundly complacent assumption that the excellence of our system is invulnerable. The achievement of higher education in this country, producing a world-class system on about half the frontline resource enjoyed by our competitors, has not brought us the acclamation we might have expected. Still less has it brought us immunity from political interference or from an inclination to micromanage institutions indeed, and indeed a sector that broadly manage themselves quite well. Precisely because the quality of our system has been taken as a self-sustaining given and the competitiveness of the international higher education market has been overlooked, it has been prodigiously difficult to sell the hard cho choices which are necessary to sustain the higher education system and its funding. One profound consequence of this is that issues such as participation, access and economic impact have taken precedence in the political debate over sustaining the quality of the system. All the political uh, compromises that have been made, from the rejection of key aspects of Deering, through the concessions made in, the two in 2004 to get the higher education bill through, through the ill-considered July 2007 changes to student support, um, uh, and to the many changes made to Brown recommendations, all have taken resource away from sustaining a high-quality system. Some of these compromises might have been justifiable as attempts to balance two public goods, access and quality. But there are, I think, serious questions as to whether the right balance has been struck. It is, of course, an analytical commonplace that mass systems of higher education cannot be funded in the ways that elite systems of higher education were and that an ineluctable consequence of a move towards mass higher education is that students must pay more. What is less well understood is that we embarked on this road to a radically different political economy of higher education as early as the 1970s. Maintenance grants were dramatically eroded in the 1970s as public expenditure pressures combined with the expansion of numbers in higher education to make the then systems of student support unsustainable. When I arrived in this university in 1977, from a far from affluent family, I enjoyed what was then deliciously called a minimum grant. Grants gave ways to loans in the 1980s, and in the 1990s, government sought, unavailingly, 
to find private sector alternatives to student support. If the first consequence of a move towards mass higher education was that students contributed much more towards the cost of their maintenance, the next stage was that they would need to meet at least some of the costs of their tuition. That was a core issue for Deering and has dominated the public debate on higher education ever since. Had it been better understood that the debate on how to fund tuition was part of a funding debate reaching back to the 1970s, and was supported in government by both parties, this debate might have been more informed and more constructive. As it was, free higher education became an easy slogan of opposition parties, especially those that thought they could make electoral pledges to reduce the scale of their likely electoral defeat. (laughs) Free higher education, as Nick Barr repeatedly reminds us, is code for somebody else pays. And in the case of higher education, those who pay are those who don't benefit directly from higher education. The advocates of free higher education from 1997 onwards have never produced a costed plan. Not even the Lib Dems' much overspent penny on income tax was a plan for higher education. Thus, the Tories' 2005 election commitments to repealing Labour's fee regime and the Lib Dems' 2010 pledge on higher education uh, funding were both designed to secure electoral advantage in some marginals and were palpably (coughs) not programmes for policy in government. Lest anybody doubt that, consider the rapid retreat made by the Tories from their 2005 position when they sought to develop a serious programme for government. And consider, too, Nick Clegg's eloquent advocacy of the new funding regime as Deputy Prime Minister. Government, or the serious prospect of government, exposes the hollowness of free higher education pledges. Hence, too, the curious moment last summer, summer of 2010, when myriad opponents of fees and former advocates of free higher education came out in support of a graduate tax, a policy that would have seen graduates with unlimited fiscal liabilities, and certainly a policy that would have seen them paying more than under the Brown proposals that they sought to oppose. Indeed, it has been striking how courageous governments have been in promoting new systems of higher education funding. Labour did legislate on Deering, albeit in a less enlightened way than Deering had recommended. As an aside, I've sometimes reflected in the recent debates that some of those who happily cast themselves as my opponents uh, had been advocates of upfront fees in 1998, a regressive policy I never supported. More strikingly, Labour in 2004 and the Coalition in 2010 were unflinching in seeking to promote higher education, changes in higher education funding at very considerable parliamentary risk. This dialectic between pledges taken in opposition and courage in government is very interesting and recurrent light motif. The debates of 2004 and 2010 were, I think, all the more searingly contested because Labour backbenchers in 2004 and the Lib Dems, Lib Dems in 2010 considered themselves pledged to oppose fees or fee increases. Moreover, as I've argued, these were pledges made in opposition, 
having less to do with higher educational policy and infinitely more to do with electoral advantage. Thus, the fissure between backbench pledges uh, and their perceived purity and government responsibility was deep and largely unbridgeable. Hence, the recourse to the cruder tactics of ministerial concessions and whips persuasion. I was struck by this in 2004 when several Labour backbenchers told me that they were actually indifferent to higher education policy, didn't really understand the 2004 bill, and thought I was quote-unquote probably right that the new system was preferable to the 1998 upfront fees. But, they said, none of this was the issue. The whips, they told me, had betrayed them over foundation trusts about which they really cared, and the higher education bill was their revenge. Add to that the civil war in the Labour Party, and you can see that the merits of the proposals mattered relatively little against the intense internal politics of the party. The Tories' atonement for their position in 2004 was a readjustment of their position after 2005, carried through characteristically by Boris Johnson, and I think rather brilliantly by David Willits. So far... I've tried to locate the 2010 debate on Brown and funding in a much longer history. Only by understanding the curiously contested history of higher education policy over the last generation can we begin to understand the striking politics of 2010. In an important sense, this was a denouement that no one had anticipated. Imagine, if you will, the counterfactual. Brown was commissioned like Deering, on a bipartisan basis, after extensive discussions between the two main parties, and indeed in the case of Brown, uh, after personal discussions between Peter Mandelson and David Willits. The reasons for this were not far to seek. It was universally acknowledged within government that the current student funding regime was unsustainable. That was partly because of the costs of the 2006 system, and they having been underestimated, and partly because the the cost of the 2007 changes were hardly estimated at all. As the squeeze came on public expenditure, exacerbated, as we will see, by the departmental location of higher education, the effect of overspends in the student support budget was a constant erosion of the teaching grant. The effects of this system, if not checked, would have been a massive erosion of teaching funding and quality. And that was apparent even before the consequences of the 2008 global crisis kicked in. Thus, the expectation was that Brown would recommend change and must seek a sustainable alternative. Almost certainly, the new system would be an elaboration of the 2006 system rather than a repudiation of it. The imperative for change thus created an imperative that Brown would at least substantially be implemented. Hence the bipartisan nature of its commission. There were, of course, attempts to to secure Lib Dem endorsement. These were largely unavailing because despite attempts to change Lib Dem policy, their conference had continued to uphold the party's stance on fees. Politically, in the autumn of 2009, this seemed to matter rather less, as Brown would report after the general election, and the near-universal working assumption, politically, was that Brown would report to a Conservative government. 
If we pursue the counterfactual a little further, had the Conservatives had a comfortable majority, Labour would probably have abstained, given that former ministers would not have been overly surprised by Brown's recommendations, and had they still been in government, they would have had to implement it to avert massive funding cuts. That's the counterfactual. Thus, the days of May uh, changed everything. And immediately, a strategy which had been designed to secure a relatively smooth implementation became a matter for the coalition agreement. Indeed, an issue invested with quite totemic significance for the coalition. However, given that the coalition agreement provided for Lib Dem abstention, the issue might have been deeply divisive rather than politically devastating. The Conservatives' failure to win an outright majority almost certainly had another important consequence. Had they won comfortably, the likelihood was that higher education would have been moved to a refocused Department of Education. Higher education's grand tour of Whitehall would have come full circle, with a brief and solitary sojourn in DIUS, leading through the grander corridors of Biz, back to the sanctuary of sanctuary buildings, the home of the Department of Education. To be sure, sure, it would have been a super-ministry, with a Minister of State for Higher Education effectively taking the lead on higher education policy. But, in important ways, returning to the Department of Education would have mattered. I should declare my hand here. I've always favoured higher education's being in the Department of Education, and that was my advice when I was running Hefke. My reasons are partly principled and partly pragmatic. The principal justification is that locating higher education elsewhere in the Whitehall village fractures fractures education policy and education policy making inappropriately. Its departmental location has meant that, rhetorically, higher education has had to privilege innovation and economic (coughs) impact over educational priorities. And on balance, this has probably been unhelpful not least because it hasn't yielded the funding dividends that its advocates had hoped. Pragmatically, being in the education departments, sorry, being in the education department means being in a big department with big margins. Being in DIUS and BIS means being in departments with very modest budgets and no margins. Any overspend or miscalculation, as with students, as with student support passing, thus has immediate impacts on other parts of the HE budget. With no buffer from underspends elsewhere, and underspends are common in the Department of Education, or salvation through year-end flexibility, uh, what that means is immediately uh, the Hefke T budget is cut. That was bad enough, but in the post-election world, moreover, being in bids uh, also took higher education away from being a part of a protected spending budget and made it near certain that the funding reductions would be severe. So as my reading is right, the outcome of the election and the advent of the coalition saw higher education in a different department in a radically changed political world and the consequences have been profound. The interactions between Lord Brown's review and the changed and changing political environment were complex. John Brown was insistent throughout that his was an independent review, 
the reviews independence matter to John as it did to all of us on the review group. Interestingly, the many journalistic attempts to suggest that the review's independence was somehow a sham have been unavailing. Indeed, the more journalistic critics have pressed, the more reluctantly they have been impressed by the review's insistence on gathering evidence, on taking evidence in public, uh, on operating with a very diverse reference group, and on developing solutions rather than reinforcing a priori assumptions. In the light of what was to come, Brown's guiding principles and principal recommendations were interesting. Its recommendations might briefly be summarised as follows. One, the separation of maintenance and tuition. Two, higher education's remaining free at the point of delivery. Three, proportional and affordable graduate contributions. Four, treating part-time students on the same basis as full-time students. Five, creating a market that would be shaped by informed student choice. Six, using student choice as the principal driver of quality. Seven, eliminating unmet and qualified student demand. Eight, freeing up numbers in the system. And nine, developing a soft cap on fees um, and um, introducing the principle of risk sharing between institutions and government over funding. Put like this, I think, the radicalism and long-term vision of Brown is clear, and the extent to which Brown proposals were amended or in some cases put into abeyance uh, to secure political support is equally apparent. At least as interesting as Brown's radicalism was the rapidity with which Brown proposals started to be amended. Herein, my sources tell me, was the deep paradox of Brown. Those who read Brown were, in the main, impressed by the coherence of its vision and the creativity of its proposals. It offered much more, gen- uh, much more generous support uh, to the least well-off, a much more efficient and less leaky system of student support, a real market which would empower students, a radically better deal for part-time learners, and a quality system which could be expanded further on a sustainable base. My sources tell me that rather than ram this through on the basis of the coalition agreement, Tories vote yes, Lib Dems abstain, a decision was taken to try to secure greater buy-in through targeted concessions. Thus the Brown report more or less immediately became the subject of an intensely political process. (coughs) The inevitable consequences was that the checks and balances central to Brown's vision became weakened. Take the issue of the fee cap. Brown envisaged what I have called a soft cap. In essence, a sliding scale where institutions charging above £6,000 would share the risk of non-repayment by, in essence, indemnifying government on the basis of the RAP charge. At first sight, this seemed complex. It's amazing how few people actually understand even the basic principles of public accounting. On second blush, some universities protested that this was objectionable. Why should they pay a levy? They were entitled to charge what they wanted with government carrying the whole risk premium. In the event, this was a self-defeating naivety or a breathtaking example of pure welfareism. On third blush, 
Uh, this seemed to critics a licence for universities to charge unlimited fees, well into five figures. Now, anybody who bothered to reflect carefully on the proposal would have concluded, I think, that the principle of risk-sharing over a basic fee was legitimate, would create market responsibility, would ensure that the system was stable and sustainable, and would give both a soft cap to the fee and real scatter in the fees actually charged. Almost certainly, the median fee under the Brown proposal would have been lower than the fees which will emerge under the current twin cap system. I understand the political logic that drove the coalition to twin caps. I understand rather less well why the sector rushed to embrace it. But above all, we must understand that the logic was a political logic, which was profoundly at at odds with the underlying logic uh, that Brown was seeking to promote. Take next the issue of numbers. Brown, rightly in my view, took pride in finding a funding model that would enable the system to continue to expand, perhaps by as much as a further 10%. I've long held that in systems such as ours, when you approach 50% participation, (coughs) you will meet all qualified demand, and the system will become self-equilibrating. Thus, Brown would have envisaged institutions setting fees where there was no unmet demand, i.e. no artificial constriction of supply which would enable providers to charge above the market fee without significant hazard. (coughs) Brown also recognised that, as the Treasury was funding the system, it would not accept an open-ended or unlimited liability. Hence, Brown sought a mechanism that would enable the Treasury to cap total higher education expenditure in any one year. But students would be free to seek admission to any institution that would accept them, subject to that institution's view of how many students it wished to accept. Thus, some high-quality institutions might expand, thereby enabling real student choice. That, too, would mean that all institutions would need to reflect carefully on quality and on market position and price accordingly. The system itself would not constrain student choice by numbers planning. The mechanism for accomplishing this in Brown was the tariff system, a two-tier system where in any one year any applicant achieving a minimum UCAS tariff, let us say two E's or their equivalent, would be guaranteed public support for their higher education. They would have a de facto voucher to use in any institution that would accept them. There would have been a separate allocation of funded numbers distributed to institutions by bidding that would be available to students who came through non-tariff routes, access programmes, APAL, where institutions, as they are now, believed that students coming through those different routes had the, benef- had the potential to benefit from higher education and they wished to admit them. What's happened? What's happened was the cry went up, but the Secretary of State will determine who goes to university. I have a small and a rather large quibble with this. My small quibble is that the Secretary of State would do nothing of the sort, merely set a minimum level of achievement at which applicants would be guaranteed funding for their higher education. Many more would gain admission and funding, 
and most would uh, end um, at the institution of their choice, uh, given uh, the constraints of prior education, achievement and potential. But my major quibble is, what on earth do you think happens under the current system? The Secretary of State determines in any one year how many people will be funded, and the Funding Council decides how many should go to each institution, give or take a flexibility margin. The effect is radically to attenuate student choice. Hefke operates a managed voucher system on behalf of the government. I genuinely thought everybody in higher education understood this. I now regret I made so generous an assumption. So the tariff mechanism was dropped, and the emerging market was thus doubly constrained uh, by controls on fees and controls on numbers. As a result, we are now in a position where institutions can and will price with a quasi-guarantee that an excess of demand and rigid quotas will mean that the system continues to squeeze applicants into all institutions like a grand toothpaste tube. I could go on, but time presses. <laughs> Let me simply observe that, as the brand recommendations were modified to maximise political support and diffuse opposition, there was a parallel process especially when the protests took to the streets, when many groups that had pressed for major policy changes before Brown was commissioned conveniently forgot what they had previously regarded as axiomatic. Thus Brown got little credit for offering a new deal to part-time learners, which many had regarded as the most important issue before Brown was launched. Look at the Brown site and look at what initial advice we got. Similarly, those institutions or groups which had campaigned for an expansion of the system were silent on Brown's vision for an expanded system and deplored its embracing the only funding model likely to achieve it. Thus a coalition faced with a cruel internal political dilemma and a higher education sector that thought it could cherry-pick without doing real violence to the proposals ensured that what went through, politically brave though it undoubtedly was, left a series of unanswered questions and the near certainty that we will have to go through it all again. So in a very real sense, the coalition has unfinished higher education business and business it cannot kick into the long grass. It recognises this in its commitment to producing a white paper, though, as we are now told, a white paper with more than a tinge of green. Market disciplines and student choice will have to be made real. So a mechanism for freeing the flow of numbers will need to be found. Structural realignment remains a priority, and I trust that the white paper will foreshadow the radical evolution of Hefke rather than the creation of a new body or bodies. We still need a new approach to widening participation and access, an approach which recognises that the real systemic failure is at 16 or even before, and thus shifts the political debate away from pillaring higher education towards making progression into higher education a priority for all schools. And above all, we must move to a position where short-term political interests are prevented from deliberately misrepresenting the funding system to the disadvantage of students in general and widening participation students, who now I think have a terrific deal in particular. And above all, I hope that we can return to the clarity of the Brown funding decision, which, as in 2004-07, has 
been muddled by political compromise. The funding system should be clear. Students pay nothing for tuition, and there is a progressive and affordable system of graduate contributions. Graduates who benefit from higher education and can afford to contribute do so. Those who are, who are not in a position to contribute, for whatever reason, do not. Maintenance is a separate issue, and students from disadvantaged backgrounds should be generously supported, as Brown envisaged. But what they need is maintenance support, not fee waivers or fee bursaries. For as long as maintenance support and deferred tuition costs are elided, the system will be misunderstood and an avoidable disincentive to participation will persist. There is thus much that a white paper ought to pick up. (coughs) Brown offered an integrated vision for higher education funding, the shape of the system and patterns of participation. From this genuinely innovative uh, approach, sorry, from this, Genuinely innovative approaches to quality and regulation might have emerged in a more truly diverse system where student choice was real rather than rhetorical. The political compromisers have taken us some distance from that vision. (coughs) Some, I appreciate, welcome this, uh, though what we have and their underdeveloped alternatives hardly yet, I think, represent a coherent vision, still less a workable system. And here... If we reflect on the political environment, we come full circle. The political space in which the white paper is being developed is still a radically attenuated space in which the bruising aftermath of the fees debate leaves us with a radically polarised, and I have to say rather tediously partisan political framework in which to to debate this most important of issues. Too much will be a matter of what we can get through, too little of what we ought to do. The Parliament that Mill and Badgett briefly glimpsed, where policy (coughs) debates were not reduced to mere politics and expertise was accorded at least some reverence, currently seems rather distant. And the torn but far from shredded coalition agreement will mean that it will be some time before the pall of the fees issue ceases to hang over every higher education debate. There is, however, perhaps one glimmer of hope. It is, of course, a matter of notoriety that the December vote on tuition fees was perilously close. 323 for, 301 against. A majority of 21 against a nominal coalition majority of 83. What has been almost wholly overlooked is that MPs for English constituencies strongly supported the proposition and may have supported a different, more Brown-like proposal on fees. Amongst English MPs, the absolute majority was 63, assuming that all those English MPs who didn't vote would have voted no. The West Lothian question truly rove its magic, with only 25 of the 117 non-English MPs voting in favour of the government's motion. The West Lothian question isn't, however, going to be solved any time soon, and it will continue to have a disproportionately significant impact on higher education policy. So higher education policy will continue to be made in a challenging environment, and our allies in government and Whitehall have never been more important. 
Moreover, and more urgently, we do need to deliver a workable, sustainable settlement for higher education. Unless you wonder about the urgency of this, think of who might commit to what on higher education in the 2015 general election. The era of easy pledges and painful recantations in higher education policy may not yet be over. Thank you very much.